Hello and welcome to The Bestseller Experiment, where we explore the inner game of writing and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe and this week I'm treating you to the best of The Bestseller Experiment. I've delved through and handpicked my favourite shows of the 500 plus that we've done of best-selling authors who have collectively sold over one billion books. Who's it going to be this week? Here's a teaser. In this episode... So I sort of had my own bestseller experiment. You know, this is not like top secret news or anything. My dad's the novelist Stephen King. And and I always wanted never, to be a writer. Never, never heard of him. Yeah, Stephen who? <laughs> he's, shown, he, no, he's a guy no, who shows no tremendous promise. I'm also terrifically interested in what you're doing. Is it possible to consciously set out to write a bestseller? I mean, of course, the answer is no. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. So it's been great having you, Joe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you were looking forward to this podcast so much because we've had to do what we call a threesome online, which I've never done before, Joe. Yeah, actually, um, I do a lot of internet threesomes. Usually I'm not fully dressed. But I've been reading a book called The Power of Two by a guy named Josh Schenk. And he's examined great creative couples like Lennon-McCartney, the Coen brothers, Watson and Crick. Well, we're not Lennon-McCartney, I can tell you that right now. <laughs> we're more like Steptoe and Son. The original Coca-Cola recipe had a solution of cocaine in it. I agree if your book includes a package of cocaine for each, mm. each buyer, it will sell. <laughs> Do you want to hear my new one weird amazing trick? Doesn't it sound like one of these things you click on on the internet that you shouldn't click on? It never fails. Tremendously successful. Just, you know, I sit down, boom, words start to flow. Someone said, I can fix a crappy page. I can't fix a blank mm. page. I called my wife and, and I said, oh my God, I think the Atlantic Monthly published me. I'm holding an envelope. And she said, oh my God, that's the best. You've got to tear it open and read it to me. And I said, oh, this is the best. This is the best. And she said, I'm so proud. I'm, I said, I'm so, uh, I just don't believe it. And I tore it open and it was... Hello and welcome to The Bestseller Experiment, where we discover what makes a best-selling novel while trying to write, publish and market one in just a year. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe and welcome to this episode. So Mr. Stay, what an exciting week we have this week. Oh yeah, yeah. We, we've got we've got a fantastic guest for everyone this week. Um, someone who it's been my pleasure to sell his books for for quite some time now. One of the giants of uh, of of modern fiction and horror. Uh, it is none other than Mister Joe Hill. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hi guys, thanks for having me on. Hi Joe. Our absolute pleasure. I've been looking forward to talking to you guys. I've actually been thinking about this for a couple weeks now. In part because I'm I'm interested in how collaborations work out. I've been reading a book called The Power of Two by a guy named Josh Schenk, a, a psychologist. And um, he's examined great couples, great creative couples like Lennon-McCartney, the Coen brothers, Watson and Crick, and the way they form their own language and start to finish each other's sentences. And, you know, and if you guys do succeed in publishing a bestseller, I think it will be because you managed to get your partnership to that point where there's that sort of the two of you make more than the sum of the two parts. Well, we're, we're not Lennon and McCartney, I can tell you that right now. <laughs> we're more like Steptoe and Son at the moment. Really, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it, that's really interesting. I, I, was, I was wondering if you were looking forward to this podcast so much, because we've had to do what we call a threesome online, which I've never done before, Joe. Yeah, actually, um, I do a lot of internet threesomes. Usually I'm not fully dressed. I mean, this is the first time I've ever had my clothes on for one. Which we appreciate very much. <laughs> Set the tone nice and early. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That was probably my fault, actually. But uh... well, I'm also terrifically interested in what you're doing because I think, I mean, there isn't really a literary science, you know, but no. I, I, it is kind of interesting, the idea of is it possible to consciously set out to write a bestseller? I mean, of course, the answer is no, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. So it's been great having you, Joe. Uh... <laughs> 
Now, Joe, I was talking to you just before Christmas, and you were telling me something about you were you were going to try and re- read every one of the New York Times bestsellers or some crazy scheme like that. Uh, is that still happening? Is that something I you, have a, you're, you're still so on? I, so I have this thing that I'm doing where any book that makes more than 50 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, I read it um, okay. because I'm curious to see uh, what did everyone get excited for? Uh, what were they responding to? My plan was to start at the beginning of this century. So if it was a huge bestseller in 1987, that's different. I, what I'm interested in, what recent bestsellers and not just any bestsellers, but the kind of phenomenon books, you know, like the Gone Girls, the Girl on a Train, the Fifty Shades of Grey, All the Light We Cannot See. You know, I, I, I just want to know what people are responding to. How many do you have to get through a year? How many hit that 50, kind of magic 50 mark? Not too many. It's usually about one a year. Wow. I have not, I have to admit, I haven't read Fifty Shades of Grey yet. Um, I haven't read The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Uh, I live in the same small town in New Hampshire that Dan Brown calls home. I have not read Dan Brown's books yet. I feel terrible because he's a wonderful guy. I've met him a few times, and but I'm still yet to read any of those novels. But I have read in the last, uh, what, in the last six months, I think, since I started talking to Mark about this, uh, I've read, you know, All the Light We Cannot See, and I'm reading The Girl on a Train now, and I did read Gone Girl, and, you know, it's interesting. Excellent. So, Mark, are you seeing any commonalities there, Joe? Are you seeing anything that's that's jumping out at you that helps these books stick around for so long? Between Girl on a Train, Gone Girl, All the Light We Cannot See, no, <laughs> not really. <laughs> Not really. What we're trying to what we're trying to do, Joe, is we're trying to we're trying to distill. We you know how you know Coca Cola has the seven secret ingredients. We're yeah. trying to distill across all of these incredible. Isn't that KFC? <laughs> Kentucky Fried Chicken has eleven secret herbs and spices. Could, yeah, and and and, and and one of them has to be some kind of drug, I think, because you know it keeps people coming back. It's a bit like Mark might not know this, but I live out in Canada, and we have this thing out here. You, you'll know this, Joe Craft Dinner. Right. Yeah. Craft dinner, Mark, just so you know, and for everyone else in the UK and Europe, craft dinner is like the, it's the student kind of meal of choice. And it comes in, it comes with this, it's macaroni and cheese, but the cheese yeah, packet. Yeah, craft macaroni and cheese. It's yeah. like, yeah, it's got like this kind of orange powder and it looks like radiation. And um, mm-hmm. I'm absolutely convinced it's got something in it which keeps you coming back for more. So, that well, Coca Cola, the original fuel. It you is? are living the life of the aspiring writer right yeah. there if you're eating Kraft macaroni <laughs> and cheese out of the box, you know. And then you, just add the hot water. Exactly. And yeah. then you start to like just get a bit, ex- you know, excited and add a bit of ketchup in, you know, mix it up a bit. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, the, the, nasty. The original Coca Cola recipe had a solution of cocaine in it. Really? Yeah, which they later removed. Because Coca Cola was first sold as a, a medicinal kind of uh, uh, tonic. And, and I, it was only later than it became a kind of sugar water drink. I agree. If your book includes a package of cocaine for each, mm. each buyer, it will sell. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It will sell. <laughs> for the few people left in the world that haven't heard about Joe Mark, give us a kind of a bit of an overview just to get everyone up to speed. Well, Joe, he's written four novels now. We've got Heart Shaped Box, we've got Horns, Nosferatu, and The Fireman's most recent one, which is coming out in paperback soon. Uh, he's written many, many short stories, which have been collected in, uh, well, there's 20th Century Ghosts. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's the comic book series Lock and Key, which is uh, absolutely amazing. And you've got a new collection of novellas coming later this year called Strange Weather. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, is it too broad to call them horror, Joe? There's horror elements to them. Uh, to each of them. I mean, The Fireman is kind of a big, epic, post-apocalyptic novel as well, which, yeah. you know... Heart-shaped Box is a horror novel. You know, when mm-hmm. I was a kid, I used to read Fangoria magazine, which is like this yeah. madica- magazine dedicated to the, uh, you know, the art of the gross-out special effects. You know, every issue mm-hmm. always came with a centerfold. And instead of like a centerfold of, you know, some pretty girl in her underwear, it was always some guy with an axe in his head and an eyeball <laughs> popping out. Um, and it used to make me crazy. I'd read it cover to cover. I was completely addicted. And I would, you know, it used to make me crazy. You'd have, you'd have some guy who would, you know, who was in an interview who was saying, I don't really think of myself as a horror director. And he just directed Slumber Party Massacre 7. <laughs> and I'm like, well, dude, you're not fucking Fellini either. You know, I hate to break it to you, you know. But so, I mean, I hate when someone dodges, you know, the, ah, I'm not really a horror writer. Heart Shaped Box is a horror novel. 
My third novel, NOS4A2, Nosferatu, is a horror novel. That's a book about a guy who has a car that runs on human souls instead of gasoline. Um, so those are both pretty scary books. Horns is my second book is not really a horror novel. It's kind of more of a, a tragic satire, um, although it does have elements of the supernatural in it. It was actually made into a, a film starring Daniel Radcliffe. So so that it has sort of a cult status among my uh, among my books. And then uh, the more recent novel, uh, The Fireman, is kind of a big action filled sci-fi movie that happens to be on paper that's quite an incredible range i mean if somebody if somebody was looking to to get into joe hill what would be the very first book you'd recommend them starting with joe yeah i mean i don't know because it really depends on it really depends on what people like you know you it depends on the person if someone wants a really you know pedal to the floor you know roller coaster type experience they'd probably want either my first or my third because those are the two sort of most straight ahead Here's a thriller. You know, a lot of people have really enjoyed the comic book. I've I've had, you know, I think mm. that my reader the readership of my novels grew substantially after I started writing my comic book, Lock and Key. So yeah, I mean it really depends on it really depends on the reader. I think I think the short stories are a great place to dip in as well, because they're very varied, aren't they? Again, as you just said, yeah. some are horror, some are kind of science fiction. There's there's you know, it's like a great I mean, did you start out in short stories, Joe? Is that where you started? So I sort of had my own bestseller experiment that I started in about I wanna say nineteen ninety four. So you know, this is not like top secret news or anything. It's been out there for over a decade. Um I come from a family of writers, my dad's the novelist Stephen King. And and I always wanted never, to be a writer. Never, never heard of him. Yeah, Stephen who? <laughs> he's shown he, no, he's a guy no, who shows no tremendous promise. He's written a couple books. They've done pretty well, you know. And um, I've heard of Tabitha King, and I've yeah. heard of Owen King. I don't know who this this pretender is. I come from this. I come from this whole family of amazing writers. You know, my mother's yeah. an amazing yeah. writer. My brother is. About the time I was thirteen, fourteen, I knew I wanted to be a writer, and I started writing every day. And I've written every day in my yeah. life since I was about fourteen. I think I probably produced about 35 pages a week since I got to high school. When I was 18 or 19, I began to think, you know, I come from this famous family and I have this famous last name and it occurred to me that might be a disadvantage, not a benefit to me because I felt like there was too much potential that I would write a mediocre novel and that a publisher would see a chance to make a quick buck in the last name and would publish a book that wasn't very good. And you can fool readers once, but you can't fool them twice. And my feeling was that if I, mm. if this mediocre novel was published and readers looked at it, they'd say, rightly, he only got published because he has a famous dad. I'm never going to waste my time with him again. And I wanted to have a really, I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. And I wanted to have the longest, best possible career. And I felt like the only way to do that was to provide people with stories that really, truly excited them, where it didn't matter who my parents were. It didn't matter what my history was. All that mattered was they were into what was happening and they wanted to know what would happen next. So I abandoned my last name and I started writing as Joe Hill. And over 10 years, I wrote four novels that I was never able to sell and dozens of short stories that I wasn't able to sell. And I collected my, my you know, the mandatory thousand rejection letters. And actually, the joke is that after writing four novels, I, I actually began to think probably I didn't have the talent or ability to be a novelist, that <laughs> I had taken my swing and struck out and, um, you know, lost my shot. But I had written some short stories that had appeared in little literary magazines, and some of them had won some prizes or got prize buzz. And one of these short stories was noticed by a talent scout at Marvel Comics who invited me to write a Spider-Man story. Wow. And I remember feeling like I really wanted to be a novelist. This was my life stream. It didn't work out. It's not happening. But I've got a foot in the door over in the comic book business. And if I wind up writing Ghost Rider and, you know, The Flash, that could be a pretty great <laughs> life. I still get to tell stories and play make-believe for a living, and, and that would be terrific. So I started writing in comics. I was really a comic book writer before I was a novelist. Around the same time, I had 15 pretty good short stories. I couldn't sell them to any publisher in America. I couldn't sell them to any of the big publishers in England. A very small press in, in England, PS Publishing, 
took a chance on the book of mm-hmm. stories because the editor there was himself a short story writer of in the genre of the fantastic and horror fiction. And they did a thousand copies and it won some awards and and got some buzz. I was was able to sell a novel shortly afterwards. And then eventually it came out about my pen name. As soon as I started doing appearances, public appearances, people started to look at me and say, boy, doesn't he kind of look like, uh, you know, and so, but it didn't really matter. At that point, it didn't really matter because I had what I needed for my self-confidence and my own, you know, I needed to believe that I could do it, you know, that I didn't need to lean on a family Mm. name, that people would enjoy my fiction for what it was, as opposed to, you know, thinking, oh, this is cool because his dad is someone famous and... That's brilliant. That's not much it's fun. Such an, it's such an inspiring story. And it must have been, I mean, it would have been so easy to go down that route of I mean, trying to use your dad's name as a way of starting your career. And, and massive props to you for, I mean, 10 years. There must have been times during that. I mean, what were some of the, what were some of the points where you just thought, ah, it's not, never going to happen? Well, I remember I had, I had sent several stories to see Michael Curtis, the senior fiction editor at the Atlantic Monthly. And he had written me back personal notes. He never published anything, but he had written back some stuff. I remember I sent them a story that I thought was pretty good. And this was this is the old days. This was like almost pre-internet. And um, so I would send out a physical story, not a digital manuscript. And when they, you know, when they sent it back, I would physically get back my manuscript so I could use it again. I would include a self-stamped return mailer and they would send it back in that. So I would always get my story back. And I sent one of my best stories to the Atlantic and I got back an envelope instead of my mailer with my short story in it. And it was just the right size to contain a check. And I thought, holy <laughs> shit, I've, I've done it. I just got wow. published by the Atlantic Monthly. And I was married at the time. And this was like, again, pre-cell phones. You know, I didn't own a cell phone. No one did. And I went outside to the pay phone and I called my, the woman I was married to, you know, I called my wife and, and I said, Oh my God, I think the Atlantic Monthly published me. I'm holding an envelope. And she said, Oh my God, that's the best. You've got to tear it open and read it to me. And I said, Oh, this is the best. This is the best. And she said, I'm so proud. I'm, I said, I'm so, uh, I just don't believe it. And I tore it open and it was a photocopied foreign rejection and scribbled at the bottom. <laughs> scribbled at the bottom was a note that said, Sorry, we lost your story. Oh no. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> And that was it. And I remember that was such a tremendous kick in the nuts <laughs> that I remember thinking, you know, I'm I'm pretty much done. You know, it's it's never happening. I mean, the other thing that was there was I, I did spend three years writing this giant epic fantasy novel called The Fear Tree, and I thought I hit it out of the park. You know, I thought it was this thing was a smash, and it got turned down by every publisher in America, and it got turned down by every publisher in England, and for an extra kick in the pants, it got turned down by every publisher in Canada. <laughs> and my dad had read the book, and and he loved he loved the book, you know, and he he was always very supportive of the pen name, but I remember him saying when that got turned down, maybe the deck was stacked too much, and I knew what he was saying, and I said, Dad, you know. I think I would rather fail with a pen name than succeed, you know, knowing that I broke in using the family. And he said, okay, 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 okay. And and dropped the subject, never brought it up again. So, and then, and after the fear tree, it was still, I think, probably another three or four years before I finally did sell 20th Century Ghosts and Heart-Shaped Box. I think it's amazing as well, because we often talk to, to authors about the high points of their career, the moment where they, you know, they held that first book in their hand. But you know, with with such a, a incredible army of writers out there, it's good to hear that you know the low points as well. Because the fact you came back from that, what was the thing that kept you going though at that point where you could have probably just smashed that that public phone box? What kept me going? Um, I think I was absolutely I unfit to do anything else, and I also think at that point, at a certain point, I realized I had written. I mean, I say I had written four novels, but actually, going back to when I was fourteen, I probably wrote twelve, because I, I wrote my first book when I was fourteen years old. I wrote this thing about a private high school where the administration was a gang of satanic devil worshippers, um, and that the cafeteria <laughs> was serving uh, the meat. The beast stroganoff was actually human bodies. Um, <laughs> that was a book called Midnight Eats, and I wrote that when I was fourteen. So I probably wrote something like 12 novels between the time I was 14 and the time when I finally got published, which was 35. And I think at about the age of 28, 
29, I thought, there's no way I'm quitting because I put way too much time into yes. this. Mm. You know, after after this long, mm. it's no no longer acceptable to screw it up. Although, like I say, that's one side. There was the bravado side, which is like, I'd never quit. You know, I'm going to die doing this. If you hadn't been published, would you still be writing now? Would you be self-publishing, do you think? Um, I don't know if I ever would have gone for self-publishing because for me personally, I needed the validation of an editor, you know, mm-hmm. that I think self-publishing would have seemed like cheating to me, you know, that somehow you're, that's not doing it right. That's not how you're supposed to do it. So, so I think I needed someone to say, yes, you're good enough that I could never have been the right. kind of person who could say to himself, you're good enough that this is good enough. Um, I needed, to, I needed some sort of outer validation. I guess you're the only person in the world that when your dad says you're good enough, you have to go, yeah, but you would say that you're my dad. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure <laughs> that's what everyone's right. Isn't that, don't your parents always say you're a genius? Uh, you know? Well, absolutely. So it's, it must've been doubly hard for you because, you know, you have to hear it externally. I mean, that's actually been a theme we've heard from it's that moment of belief that is almost the spark for every successful writer's journey where they truly it might be an inner belief, but it's also sometimes that external validation. Who was it that valid that gave you that validation? Would you say? Can you remember pinpoint the moment where you thought this is going to happen? There were th- there were three people, but I want to say something, Mark D. I want to go back to something you said in the very first podcast of the bestseller experiment, hmm. where you said when you work with people who are trying to achieve a dream, you make a point to remind them that you know the moment they're writing the first sentence they're already doing it that's they're already having the dream that the dream is not the end result mm-hmm. but the dream is getting there you know and i always think like like what mattered about the beatles i'm a big beatles guy every sooner or later every conversation comes back to the beatles think- you know you know <laughs> we look at sergeant pepper and we say that was the moment that was the moment it all came together it's not true. The moment was playing every single night in Hamburg yeah. in the clubs. That yeah. was the moment. That was when they became the Beatles before anyone knew anything about them except that they were this bar band that made a good noise every single night. So I think, I think you know, the stories that matter are the ones that you didn't sell. You know, that's how you created the first and most difficult creation of any artist's career, which is the invention of yourself. You know, that's the the process. Inventing yourself is the real challenge. And then after that, the novels are easy. Yeah, it's it's incredible you say that because I almost feel like you have to, we we have to become experts at creating characters in our stories. But what's the character we create in our own story of life? You know, that's that's the big one. And uh, yeah, it's 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 great to hear you you mention about that first episode because I think a lot of people you know, it's about plugging away and keep on going, but in realizing that you are living the dream. I mean, would you, would you say that it's become harder since you became successful and published or, you know, do you still kind of tap in daily about living this life, living this dream as a full-time writer? I would say it got a lot easier after I got on antidepressants. I had, uh, I had a, a lot of, I had a lot of struggles with paranoia and anxiety. Um, and actually after I had this totally cliched thing where I had, you know, heart shaped box came out and it was a huge bestseller and it was actually bigger than anything I had ever imagined. Um, it sort of hit my daydream, cleared the bar of my daydreams and then some, you know, and so I immediately had a meltdown and couldn't handle it. And, uh, you know, I had like a kind of nervous breakdown and wound up divorced and, and uh, terrifically unhappy and full of paranoid ideas. And it took me, it was a bit of a bit of a struggle, actually, sort of getting back, getting back together. The last two or three, but the last two or three years have been, you know, some of the best, some of the happiest, best writing I've done in my life. It's been great. Fantastic. Fantastic. And you mentioned there were three people, you were going to mention three people that Kind of. Right. Who gave me validation. Mm. Three people, three people that really mattered. The first was uh, this talent scout at Marvel Comics, Teresa Fokarile. Uh Well, actually, the first was probably Stephen Jones, who is a best new horror anthology. He picked my story, 20th Century Ghost. His acceptance of that story led directly to a talent scout at Marvel Comics giving me a shot to write Spider-Man. And for me, that was my big... I mean, it sounds corny, but writing an 11-page Spider-Man story was my big break. But I loved comics, and and Marvel Comics was like a real publisher, you know? And so there was that. And then finally, and most importantly, Peter Crowther at PS Publishing, who decided to publish my first book. Yeah. So, Mark, are you are going to tell Joe about, about this kind of problem we've got with our novel right now? Just the one. <laughs> um... <laughs> How's it going? How many pages do you guys got? 
we're we're up to about fifty five thousand words. It's very rough. It's really really rough in all uh, senses of the world. Yeah. That's fine. But we're we're getting there. Our original idea was certainly before Christmas. We were saying. We'll write three chapters, then we'll do a really interesting synopsis. We'll give that to an editor. The editor will look at it and give us some structural notes. But what's happened is there's so many moving parts in this thing, and I'm so we're still learning who these characters are, that we're up to like 50-something thousand words now. And um, we're kind of close to a very, very rough, very long outline, <laughs> which we're then going to have to go back and tidy up because it's just like a complete mess. Good. You've got the book right where you want it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. Um, but That's it's... great. Because you can, you, someone said, I can fix a crappy page. I can't fix a blank mm. page. I love it. Exactly. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because Mark and I, I've been writing since I was a kid. Uh, and I've been writing stories and plays and scripts and all sorts of screenplays, you know. So I'm, you know, it's, it's something I love and I, I enjoy and I'm very passionate about. My colleague here, Mr. DeVoe, has been writing for a long time too, but you've never got past that 20,000 word mark, have you? That's and right. it's, you have um, now. Well, with yeah, the help of Mark. <laughs> um, but the, what, what I'm finding is, and you've confessed this before, Mark, which is you have this, there's a new idea over there. Let's go chase it. Oh, totally. And, yeah, and, I, and I'm like, no, no, can we just get to the end of this first, please? Oh, no, there's another one. There's another one over there. There's a new idea. No, no, no. No, can we just finish this bastard first? <laughs> hey, hey, I've had this idea. And the thing is, the annoying thing is, a lot of them are really good ideas. And yeah, I'm I like to say it's the new idea too, Mark. I love it. Mark I was going to say, what do you do when like that happens? Say, I like to say it's the new idea too. <laughs> what happens when it when when you get the new idea, Joe? What do you what, how do you how do you deal with that and not get distracted? See, I don't. My first drafts are full of material that I'll cut out later. In fact, a lot of times I think I'm getting faster. I'm much faster now. But it used to take me about three years to write a book, and sometimes I would think it took me two years to write the first third of the book and then about six months to write the other two thirds. And the reason why was I would churn out so much material figuring out who these people are and just getting them talking to each other and and trying to hear the sound of their voice, the specific way each character talks. I'm very sort of aural. And if I could find their voice, I could figure out everything else I needed to know about them. And then I could, eventually it would get to a point where I was so comfortable with the characters, I could plop them into any scene and figure out how they would solve a problem, how they would react to difficulties. Um, So that's always what I'm trying to look for. And so on that level, I don't care how much material I turn out, you know, a, a fun new situation is always worth exploring, even if a lot of them don't make it to the finished book. So my rule, my basic rule when I get to the second draft is every time I look at a chapter, a scene, I say to myself, what's awesome about this scene? If I was a reader, what's so awesome, I couldn't wait to get to the next page, you know, and I need to see that in every page. Really, I need to see it in every paragraph because I'm so scared a reader will put down the book. You know, I just thrive on fear. There's so many distractions. There's so much great stuff on YouTube. And you guys haven't really thought about what you're getting into. Do you guys, you ever looked at Netflix? Do you see how much great stuff there is on Netflix? Why would anyone read your book if they could watch Netflix? You know, do you know what's on YouTube? Do you see Apple streaming music? You know, all the Oscar movies are out. Why would anyone waste their time on your book? You've got to give them an amazing reason to keep reading every page you know and i'm just absolutely ruthless about saying if i don't think there's something just mind-blowingly awesome in this chapter it's gotta go and it's amazing how easy the stuff that's not awesome just drops right out of the book you know you can just it's like you know it's like turning someone up upside down and shaking the change out of their pockets it's just all that stuff you don't need just drops that is awesome awesome approach and it reminds me it's like doing things differently with like instead of saying what's crap about this what's not working which is where everyone goes right they're all like oh let's just remove all the crap it's actually saying what do i love and then everything else just you know it's a bit like the marie kondo's way of decluttering your house apparently what sparks joy what gives you joy what gives you joy every page that's right every single page you have to defend why it's awesome. And this should be easier because there's two of you. So there's one of you to say it's not awesome. Tell me why this is awesome. And the other to defend it. And if you can't persuade the other person, boom, it's gone. Gotta go. Yeah, good Gotta idea. Go. I think we'll adopt that, Mark. What do you reckon? 
That's fascinating because we we had well we had an example of that just this week. Okay, you wrote a scene between two characters which you sent to me, and I said, okay, there's nothing really happening. It's an interesting scene, two people talking to each other, but our protagonist she doesn't come out of this with anything that she didn't have before. She she walks into a room, has a conversation, comes out, nothing has happened, and I said did, to you, did make they it hurt work each other? harder. No, no. Did no, they hurt no. each other? And, no. Gotta no, go. No, no. Yeah. It was my. But, it was my attempt. I said. To Mark, at, it, I said I was going to say it's my attempt at starting love interest in the in the book. <laughs> right. Then it's even more important that they hate each other. <laughs> I, said, I said, make it work harder. And you came up with a MacGuffin that I think is going to be the linchpin of of the whole novel now, Mark. You know, the I, whole I novel. Think, you know, this is, <laughs> and I was working on it today, and it's it sparks new ideas in me. So I think that back and forth, having those two minds at each other, is is helping us. I say that now, but yeah, right. It's the it's it's the power too. You know, he he says he says I've got the first two lines. She was just seventeen. She was no beauty queen. And then one of you has got to say, <laughs> no, that's a crap line. You know, and yeah. so you think some more, and then say, you know what I mean. We know what I mean. You know, and suddenly it's like, <laughs> ooh, that's filthy. That's great. You know, this is the whole thing from from the power of two. This Josh Shrink book. You know, where it's like, whoa, that's electrifying. But that's because you're good fencing partners. That's fantastic. Fantastic. I know you're a massive, yeah. massive Beatles fan, and I also know that you're very much into the kind of Brit explosion Brit from the in the seventies, yeah, British and in, British invasion. Have you yeah. have you ever drawn any? Because I'm I'm you know my background is a I've kind of come from this music industry as a recording artist. Have you Joe ever drawn any comparisons about um, music and books, which you've which kind of made some big moments in your writing? Yeah, I, I will say that I've so far I have successfully managed to work into my Beatles versus Stones argument into every single book. <laughs> and sooner or later, sooner or later, Beatles versus Stones comes up. Brilliant. I'm a big British invasion guy. I mean, the Kinks, you know, the Who faces, you know, I live and die by this stuff. And, you know, and even the later and even the later stuff, you know, I mean, I I love Oasis. I mean, it's sort of horrible to think, but I mean, wasn't Oasis the best band of the 90s? Yeah. I, my first book borrowed the title of a nirvana song you know it's hard to if that was yeah because i love that track. absolutely love that track. absolutely and but you know um if you ask me what's the better song um i hate myself and i want to die or live forever by oasis it's no contest live forever absolutely yeah. um, so do you listen do you listen to <laughs> what, were we, what were we talking about i was oh, gonna yeah, say okay, what, so... what do you listen to when you write do you actually <laughs> listen to kind of beatles or okay so do you want to hear my new weird my new one weird amazing trick doesn't it sound like one of these things you click on on the internet that you shouldn't click on my one weird amazing trick it will amaze um, you <laughs> i do this one amazing trick to get in the mood to write it's never fails tremendously successful just you know i sit down boom words start to flow i play piano for a half hour before i write wow and wow. i'm a terrible pianist dreadful pianist um but i play i play piano and i work at it for half an hour and it seems to clear my head and put me into a different mind space and then when i sit down it just flows isn't it no thought no wow. second guessing just i bet I mean, some you, you are kind of exercising you. a creative muscle then aren't you you know so it's uh it's a warm-up it's clearly triggering something that's what I think. I think it's a warm up. I think it's a it's a lateral move. You know, it's connected to writing and reading. I mean, I'm reading notes and there's expression, but it, it's nonverbal. You know, yeah. it's this completely mm. nonverbal thing. And uh, somehow it does something to it does something to prime the motor. Awesome stuff. So have you got any other life hackers to share with us, Joe? Have you got any other kind of well, <laughs> things you do to get going? I was thinking about how do you write a bestseller? What do you do that makes a bestseller? And I know some stuff, and it's totally useless. It won't help you even the tiniest bit. Um, Come on, bring it, bring it, bring it. <laughs> bring it. <laughs> okay. The best thing that you can do to have a successful big bestseller is to get your book praised publicly in a high-profile media space by a big influencer. So this mm -hmm. morning, on the front page of the New York Times, they ran an article about Barack Obama's reading and about how the president's reading helped keep him sane and grounded during the eight years yeah. he was president. Yeah. And he mentioned a science fiction novel called The Three-Body Problem. Now, I don't know what the Amazon sales rank for The Three-Body Problem was yesterday. <laughs> but today, at the time of this recording... It's number 50 on Amazon's list. 
So the president loved it. He said so publicly, and it became a huge bestseller. And that is not the first time this has happened. Students not in Fleming history, and Kennedy, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. Well, remember yeah. that when Kennedy was asked what he liked, he said he enjoyed the spy thrillers of Ian Fleming, and the rest is history. Yeah. From um, Russia with Love, yeah. So if you get on over here, we had the Oprah show. That's over. But if you can get noticed by someone, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, <laughs> someone who has a big media clout, I don't think that Donald Trump has ever read no. a novel, so it's not likely he's going we to We can play him the audiobook. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have history uh, with Mr. Trump. <laughs> the other thing that I would say, the other way that the one, I'm certain, absolutely certain, that it will help sell books if you can get on TV. So um, over here, we have the Today Show. Over there, you guys have like the Punch and Judy Show or the Richard and Judy Show or the, something like that, you know, and if they pick your book and you get on, that's a big bestseller. It's it's Punch and Judy. Is it Punch and Judy? Something like that, right? Don't Richard tell me. Richard and Judy. Yeah, 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 right, yeah, yeah. right, 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 right. Punch and Judy. So that's what I thought. So um, well, that's just when they know, have if arguments. You get on that, if you get on that show, you're going to sell books. Yeah. Does this help you? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the question is how. Well, really? I mean, I guess. I mean, certainly the we will be self-publishing. That's the thing. This is the only way we can do it in a year. Is we self-publish and we we publish on Kindle and Apple and that kind of thing. Getting high-profile people to read it and praise it. I mean, you know, when you see, you know, quotes from Lee Child on the cover or Stephen King, you know, it it adds a kudos to a book and gets people picking it up. So. That, yeah, that I don't know if that's help. good enough. It definitely though. does help. Yeah, I don't know if it yeah. helps much. You need, you need, you need Sorry, a president. Yeah, pres presidential level at least. You to, yeah, you have to, you have to go for it. Lee, Lee Child and Stephen King is good, but they blurb a lot of books, and a lot of books, a lot of books they blurb don't become bestsellers. I mean, you got to have, you know, Barack's got to say something, man. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we could invite you know? him on the podcast now that he's kind of be kicking around. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think like who could, who could, Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg's book club kicks yeah, that's books. True. You know, actually, um, actually, these these days it's vloggers. You know, Zuella, the vlogger over here, she has a book deal thing with WH Smiths, the the book retail chain. Oh, and, really? you know, one word from her and a book shoots up the charts. So Zoella might be. And you know, we our book has a female protagonist. Actually, uh, Michelle Obama. We should get it to Michelle okay. Obama. Joe, who is the most yeah, influential yeah. Um, kind of media? that kind of promoted you in the states is there a big name out there that uh, everyone kind of goes after you know neil gaiman said about heart shaped box that he loved the book unreservedly and they put that quote on, on the back cover and i'm sure it sold you know and and my you know i sort of was coming from comic books and i write a kind of scary dark fantasy that in some ways is more similar to neil's than to my dad's and so i wanted to steal neil gaiman's audience and he said, sure, let me help you with that, and gave the book a big quote. So I would say that Neil Gaiman was helpful. Because um, I remember seeing that video of him recommending the book. It was like a Google Play video. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Really. You know, Janet Maslin, Janet Maslin has reviewed all the books in the New York Times, and she said some really terrific things about them. And I would say a good review from a high-profile reviewer can still move a couple copies. I, I mean, I don't know, you know, that it will make you a bestseller. Mm. Every little bit helps. I don't really know why the books have, have sold well. And I, I think... And this is the flaw in your experiment, not to bum you out, but I think trying to predict what's going to become a bestseller is a little bit like trying to predict which direction a flock of sparrows are going to fly in. You <laughs> yeah, kind yeah. of can't do yeah. it because the readership is this giant, unpredictable crowd. You know, you don't know what someone is going to write and suddenly that's going to electrify everyone because it's exactly what we needed to be talking about. The only thing you can do, I had a track coach. And we asked once, you know, when I was in high school, we, I asked my track coach, what's the best way to win a race? And he said, if you start strong and then you run powerfully through the middle section of the race and then put on a final burst of speed at the end, you'll have a good race, <laughs> you know? And, and that's kind that's of how great. I feel like the, the only thing you can do is <laughs> if you just open your book with an absolutely mind-blowing powerhouse beginning. And then if the next 250 pages are completely irresistible, winding up to a brain-smashing, 
I never saw that coming ending. <laughs> you'll be fine. <laughs> There's nothing, you know, if you just do that, that's you, you know, you'll sell some copies. It'll be all right. Did you, so when you, when you sit down, when you sit down to write, Joe, and you're, you're actually kind of going through that process, are you very conscious when you're writing of, I mean, you talk about when you look through it and you pick out the bits, but when you actually sit down to write, are you very conscious of, I have to go in with a firework display here. I have to kind of end this chapter on an absolute cliffhanger. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I think, you know, when I finish a chapter, there better be a reason to start the next one. Right. You mm. know, so you always sort of try to end it in the way that Chandler discussed with the man coming through the door with a gun. Yeah. I might have lifted that yeah. from one of your first podcasts, actually. I think you guys talked about that in the first podcast. Yeah. Every chapter, a man comes through the door with a gun. The other one I quote all the time is Billy Wilder. Billy Wilder talked about that final act. He said, you, you build and build and build and build and build, and that's it. Get out as soon as you can. On a practical level, I think, you know, dialogue, people would rather read dialogue than big blocks of description. Mm. You know, yeah. and if you get, if you have characters with interesting voices, those pages will fly. When you put two people in a room and they each have interesting voices and they're not going to be nice to each other, those pages tend to fly, you know, because there's some sort of magpie part of our brains that want the gossip. It doesn't matter. These people don't really exist. You know, we want to hear, he said that? She said what? You know, we can't help it. And so and so when you get, you know, especially if they have a really distinctive fun way of talking. I've always tried to look for a way to make the characters verbally fun. Mm. C.S. Lewis does mm. this too. You know, if you go through the C.S. like Reepicheep's dialogue is really really fun. You know, um the Pensieves, you know, they have they say great things and Prince Caspian I think um you know, Edmund says to Peter, do you really think you can beat him? And he says, I don't know. That's why we're going to fight. That's what we're going to fight to find out, you know, and it's just <laughs> such a great way to end a chapter. It's such a great little line. That's, that's amazing. And I think there's, there's so much that we can draw from the classics. And what I love about some of the reviews you get, you know, they talk about the horror aspect of, of the book, but then you hear that I saw one big thing that just said, you know, fun. So you're obviously kind yeah. of consciously trying to make your books humorous as well as scary, right? Have you ever watched the Marvel movies? I mean, like, the, all hmm. the Marvel superhero films, each one of those films is like a textbook in great storytelling. Yeah. And I read a review where someone reduced, said, every Marvel movie is just quip, quip, punch, quip, quip, punch. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with that? That works pretty good. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, and I really think it's the uh, the old, you know, Pauline Kale said about, you know, movies are kiss, kiss, bang, bang, you mm. know. And so I just want to, uh, you know, another way of saying, is this chapter awesome, is to look at it and say, is there a kiss? Is there a bang? No? Gotta go. Well, no, I mean, I this is, this is just a golden masterclass. I mean, it's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> We've asked lots of writers about their tips for writing and starting out their writing habits, but very soon we will be embarking on a second draft. Uh, you've already given us, I think, a couple of tips on second drafts, but when you go into rewrites, what's your, what's your mindset there? What are you looking out for? Short chapters and short sentences. You know, if a chapter is going to go on, it better be going on because it's awesome because mm. it's so awesome. You know, someone is, someone is being dragged behind a truck and their skin is getting flayed off and, you know, they're trying to, you know, wiggle out of the handcuffs. I mean, something like that. Yeah, that's the only reason I can think to have a chapter go any longer than three pages. I, I think, I mean, you can't underrate how much people, how much people like short things, short chapters, short sentences, short skirts, you know, a seven minute pop song is never going to fly. Let's keep it two and a half minutes. You know, don't bore us, get to the chorus. I mean, there has to be a good reason. If you're going to go long, if you're going to write a sentence that goes on for like a full page, or if you're going to do like a 20-page discursive chapter, there better be a damn good reason for it. I'm not saying you can't do it. Although, if you're writing an entertainment, sorry, you can't do it. I mean, if you're writing literary fiction, that's different, but you guys aren't. You guys want to write something that's, you know, where the pages are going to fly and... You know, or the, I guess it'll be an ebook, so it'll be like the button world. <laughs> the you know, swipe. Someone's pressing it. <laughs> By the way, when I said that I read, when I said that I read bestsellers, I also pay very close attention to what sells in ebooks, top sellers in ebooks, because that's become an increasingly important part of the market and reveals something about readers 
the it's like the mask has come off and we've seen this hidden face, this whole hidden demographic of what people one th- and one thing I would point out is clearly people really like to read dirty fiction. You know, and and they didn't like doing it when they had to read a book where it was like naked people on the cover. But if they can read it in an anonymous device, they dig. Yeah. yeah, You know, we dig this. We dig the, you know, the people undressed. So they they... monkeying around, (laughs) you know. So, Joe, tell us about your tell us about your uh, some of your kind of writing habits. Are you a very kind of structured writer? Do you, you know, get up and you're at the desk at a certain time or are you kind of more just when as and when it happens? Well, it's kind of gone through a little bit of a transition recently because for about three or four years, I was doing all my first drafts longhand. Prior to that, I had done most of my work directly into the computer. And then I went through this whole phase of really enjoying just the notebook and being disconnected, you know, no Twitter, no text messages. I put on my vinyl and I write longhand. I found that terrific. So I wrote the end, the last 12 issues of my comic book longhand. I wrote the fireman longhand. I wrote three of the four novellas in the upcoming book longhand. And it's just this terrific, it was terrifically satisfying way to work. However, I have gone back to the computer and, and that's been a real rush. That's been, it's been like I spent years running with weights and now I've put the weights down and I'm working without them. And it's, that's pretty exciting, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, writing longhand was like resistance training, (laughs) but in terms of my pattern, you know, I expect to get between 1500 and 3000 words every day, more and more, I find myself looking for 3,000, not 1,500. Mm-hmm. We've got some deadlines to keep. Let's go ahead and make them. You know, and I've been a lot more relaxed, so it's been a little easier to, to get my pages in. Excellent. Um, Talking about relaxing, Joe, I mean, you touched on this earlier, and this is something not enough writers talk about, is a lot of writers are anxious people. They do have mental health problems. Other exercises that you do, I mean, is playing the piano, is that helping you get into a certain mindset? Are there things that you do that help you know, if you've got a deadline or whatever, or, or an anxiety, is there something you can do that, that gets you, that brings you down, that calms you down? Playing piano has been terrific because prior to that, mostly what I did was I would, I would go out for a long drive and find someone's pet. And then I would, I'd strangle it in a ditch, you know, and <laughs> I generally found that killing, killing pets, you know, killing animals in the wild seemed to stir <laughs> something, you know, keep me motivated. Um, but this is less, that leads to, that can, you, you can have awkward conversations and visits from people in uniforms and stuff. So the piano has been a huge step forward. I don't know. You know, I mean, like I've been doing it for a long time. I guess my, I guess my, my trick when I sit down is I'm, I decide this first paragraph is only going to have three sentences in it. And the first sentence is going to have like three or four words. It's just going to be like a three or four word sentence. You know, you can come up with two words, you know, and I love a great, I just, I always think like a two word sentence is like a hammer and a nail, you know, boom, you know, (laughs) tires smoked, thunder boomed. I love that. I mean, I just think that that has, for the reader, it's a real kick in the pants, you know, so I'm just, I try to get started by working and I'm not thinking about the whole day of work. I'm not thinking about the whole scene. I'm just thinking about what's one awesome sentence I could put on the page. You know, what's the next awesome sentence I could put down? And I just want to find, you know, that one little four or five word sentence where the reader will feel a little bit like I didn't I didn't think that was going to be the next thing I'd read. You know, um, I sometimes think Norman Mailer used to compare it to a boxing match. And I sometimes think it is a little bit like that. And it's almost like you're beating the reader. Why a reader would pay to be pummeled, I don't know. But that's kind of it. You know, you're kind of trying to stick them again and again. Boom, boom, <laughs> boom. You know, here's another one. You didn't see that coming. Boom. That's brilliant. I love that. Well, I think it goes back to what you said about it being a visceral experience. You know, you're sitting and listening to two people having an argument or you're sitting there listening Waiting for the juice, you know, uh, and I think a good novel should take you through. It should be like a roller coaster ride or a boxing match or whatever. You know, the the best books I've read are ones where I've come out of it kind of reeling. You know, I think, you know, if we can get halfway there, then then we're onto something. Well, you know, I think like so if you're writing a mystery, you know, there's a temptation to have a scene where someone will call someone up on the phone for information. Okay. But that's not awesome. We've seen that scene in a million movies. Why do they have to talk on the phone? Can't you have them talk someplace more interesting? What if one of them checks safety on a roller coaster and they have to have the conversation on a roller coaster? 
You know, um, mm. can't you put them somewhere else? What if one of them, you know, get them off the phone? Don't have them talk in the kitchen. I can't imagine anything more boring than that. Have them talk someplace interesting. And then it's right away you have to figure out why they don't like each other. They do like each other. That's not that interesting. When people like each other, it's boring. So yeah. why, you know, that your detective is trying to get information out of this woman and she hates him for some, why does she hate him? You know, does she hate him? Cause she just doesn't like his face. She, she doesn't like his, his car. He comes to her neighborhood and that car, you know, showing off that how much wealthier he is than everyone in the neighborhood. What's his deal? You know, what's his problem looking down on her? Why does he look down on her? You know, he's, you've got to have conflict. You've got to have friction. Or maybe she's really lonely and she likes the guy, you know, and then it's like an uncomfortable seduction or something. But there has to be some – it can't just be he needs information and she's going to give it to him. That's boring. That's, that's excellent advice. And, uh, I, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take all that on board, especially our kitchen scene, Mark, eh? <laughs> People talking in the kitchen? Terrible. Oh, yeah, definitely. Chapter, chapter one. It's gone. But, Dead to me. Um. <laughs> so there's no reason the thing that i say in a lot of writing workshops is people will start a story with someone waking up turning off the alarm and opening the fridge there's no reason for us to hear about him opening the fridge unless there's a severed head <laughs> if there's if there's a severed head in the fridge oh. i want to know otherwise let's move it I along love it. that's awesome so joe <laughs> tell, tell me what what if you could pick one piece of advice that you got from your dad what was the, is there kind of like one piece of advice that's really stuck and and lived with you throughout your writing career yeah that's a pretty common question is what's the best piece of advice you got you know variations of the what's the best piece of advice you got well i want people to keep listening to the bestseller experiment because because they're going to get a lot of good advice they're going to learn a lot from the podcast and i'm following along too because i you know i'm a little behind i'm not up to the current episode but i'm also interested to see what i can learn but now i'm going to say something which is a little bit of a bummer which is <laughs> i've had lots of good advice from my mom from my dad from various mentors from very experienced writers but I never really learned any of the things I needed to know from the advice of other people. Everything I learned about good writing, I learned from reading a lot of good books. Mm. You know, that's basically how I got it. And we talked earlier, you know, I mentioned that I had a little bit of a nervous breakdown after my first novel. Uh, I was in a really bad place and I started all these books that I couldn't get going. And I had another book due and it was a year overdue and then it was two years overdue and things were getting pretty bleak. And at a certain point, I said, fuck it. I, I can't write my own novels. I'm all done writing my novel. I can't do it anymore. Here's what I'm going to do instead. And I got a copy of one of my favorite novels, Elmore Leonard's The Big Bounce. And so every day I would sit down and I would write four pages from The Big Bounce. I copied it sentence by sentence, page after page. And then as I went along, I started to change sentences or to add material. And I had this idea I was going to finish it and then release it for free on the Internet. And it was going to be called The Bigger Bounce. Brilliant. After I got about 20 pages in, <laughs> I would sit down and I would write four pages of The Big Bounce by Elmore Leonard, copying, just copying his words, his sentences, his rhythm, his dialogue, the feel of his characters. Then I would push it to the side and I would start writing Horns, which was the second novel. Horns isn't anything like Elmore Leonard. It, I don't believe for a second that anyone can look at that book and see echoes of Elmore Leonard in it. But in the process of working on Elmore Leonard's material, I found I could make a transition to my own voice, that it loosened me up. It loosened up stiff muscles. And, and at a certain point, when I was about 80 or 100 pages into rewriting The Big Bounce, I quit working on Elmore Leonard, just gave myself over full time to horns. So if you want to learn how to be a good writer, I would say find a book where you say this book is it and read it again and then read it again with a highlighter and a pencil count words how many words did he put in each paragraph when he has dialogue how long does his dialogue generally go does he write a page of dialogue does he only write three or four exchanges you know what's going on know that book inside out and out and if you have to rewrite it you know sit there and work on it rewrite it R physically run his sentences through your brain or her sentences through your brain you will learn you will learn rhythm you will learn how to dance you're copying someone else's dance moves and learning them for yourself and eventually you will be able to dance your own dance wow that is incredible joe do you know in the music world it's so amazing listening to you say that because that's exactly what i do in the music world and i call it um 
in the music world, I call it templating. And it's like going to somebody and buying the architectural plans. But when you create the house, you design it completely differently. You have a different interior and it is completely, completely different, right? It's been 10 minutes since we talked about the Beatles. So let's talk about the Beatles again, right? What did they What did they do when they were in Hamburg? They didn't play their own compositions. Yeah. They played Chuck the Berry. Covers. They played the girl bands that they were loving. And they played those songs and they played those songs and they played those songs. And they began to write their own songs. And by the time they were writing their own songs, they knew the structure of a three-minute rock and roll tune inside and out. They knew all the tricks. They knew all the all the vocal intonations mm -hmm. that would elicit an emotional reaction. Um, you know, students of Go um, who learn how to play the, the game of Go traditionally are not allowed to play their own game of Go when they begin studying. Instead, they have to play their way through a hundred games, a hundred classic games of Go, playing both sides of the board and working from a booklet that shows what moves were made to learn the moves of the masters before they even begin with their own stuff. Awesome. It's a good way to That's learn. brilliant. I absolutely love that. So, Joe, we thought it'd be fun to ask you if you could help us pick out our winner. We were running a Michael Connolly competition to win his hardback of his latest yeah. novel. And we've had incredible number of entries, but we thought if we uh, press this magic button. So it's a signed Michael Connolly first edition. It's, uh, it's a signed yep. yeah, hardback of his most recent okay. number one. It's, so it's, I'm going to count down UK, and then it's I'm. It's the UK hardback. So I'm going to count down. And then I'm going to read the name of the person who won the first edition signed Michael That's Connelly. it. I'm going to press a button yep. and the name okay. will appear. Okay, here we go. Okay. Go Three, two, one. Joe Hill. <laughs> oh, my God. Who the funk Oh, my God. Guys, do you want my shipping address? That's so cool. I don't even remember. I don't even remember signing up to. No, That's you're not going to let me have it. You, no. Do you know, I, I, I question, I think you're an amazing writer, Joe, but I question your, uh, your, your reading skills. <laughs> it's, the, right, it's actually okay. quite so close. The, it was quite close, wasn't it? The name that's in the messaging window that came up is quite close. It's, it's Joan P. Quinn. Joan, Joan P. P. Quinn, come on down. You've won a sign, Michael Connolly. Congratulations, Joan. We'll be getting that off to you in the post very soon. And thank you for everyone for entering. And listen, if you, if you didn't win this time, if your name wasn't Joan, we have a number of other amazing <laughs> competitions to give away. So get to our website, look for the win navigation, click link. We've got about four or five live right now with equally, including, including Joe, uh, Brian Cranston's underpants, tighty whities. How awesome is that? Wow. <laughs> now there's a prize. Wow. Unused, unused, I should say. But, uh, Great. That's terrific. That's terrific. I, I won't be able to get right over to sign up for that, unfortunately. But <laughs> but but I, I envy the people who will be taking home the uh, Fruit of the Looms. Yeah. You, you say unused, Mark. The Fruit I of the Looms of wear glory. Them, I did wear them briefly for the photo <laughs> shoot for the competition. Briefly. So oh. they're slightly soiled. That's good. Uh, That's good. Okay. <laughs> okay. Good talking, you guys. <laughs> That's brilliant. Thanks, chaps. Question of the week. Question of the week is from Josh Atkinson on Twitter, AJ Atkinson Oct, who tweets us twice a day, Joe, with his word count. He's our favorite tweeter. Ah, uh, that's so great. And, and here's the thing. You've kind of answered this question already, okay? He said, any advice on extending chapters? For some reason, no matter what happens, I end at 1,500 to 2,000 words. Good. Now, I, I'm worried by his use of the word extending there because I think a chapter is as long as it needs to be, you know, and you were talking earlier about short, punchy chapters. But do you ever find this? Do you ever find yourself coming up short and thinking this should be longer? My favorite chapter in Heart-Shaped Box is one sentence long. So <laughs> people love a short chapter. I would love to do a book that's 100 chapters long and every chapter is only like one paragraph. Yeah. I think that could be such a great book, you know, with illustrations or something. You know, I, I just think that would be terrific. What's wrong with why? I would say I would say if every chapter is 1,500 words or 2,000 words, that's terrific because it shows consistency. When I sit down to write, I generally want to write a complete scene in one sitting. Mm -hmm. And I'm always a little uncomfortable if I feel like I've, only gotten halfway through a scene, not because I have a problem with starting mid-scene the next day, but because I feel like, oops, it's going on too long. What's what's happened here? Why why wasn't I able to get through uh, this scene? And usually if a scene goes on too long, it's because you started it too early. 
Do you think consistency might be a problem if every chapter is 2,000 words long or 5,000 words? No, I think that's great. No, I think that's great. You you don't think that's going to be too monotonous? You don't want to break it up with shorter chapters? No, you're keeping a steady. I mean, not in first draft anyway. I mean, if you want to, you know, if you start to worry, you know, wow, every chapter is three pages. Then again, I'd probably use it. You know, I'd probably, instead of running from it, I'd probably say, great, every chapter is three pages. Now I'm going to go through the book and that two-page chapter I'm going to add to and the four-page chapter I'm going to cut. You know, I would rather... (laughs) Um, I'd rather use something like that consistency than run from it. Yeah, it sounds okay. great. I wouldn't worry about it. Cool. Has, cool stuff. Here's a here's a thought for you guys. I wonder if it's crossed your mind. Has it crossed your mind the bestseller experiment might succeed, but that it might not be your success? <laughs> that it might actually... Oh, yeah, that yeah, yeah, guys, yeah. We, we, that the bestseller experiment might lead to a bestseller... It just might not this be is the only reason. This, this is the only reason I'm doing it, Joe. I, I, I think this is going to be a complete disaster. I've said that from day one, but I'm convinced <laughs> there's someone out there who will beat us to it, who will have a book that maybe they've had sitting in the drawer for 10 years. And we're hearing this a lot on Twitter. People are saying, this is great. I've started writing again. And I'm convinced there's going to be someone out there who beats us to it. And if they do, job done. I'll be so happy. Yeah, absolutely. The moon. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's highly likely. And it would be awesome. I think we're. <laughs> I think. I think. Uh... What that will fail? <laughs> no, I think it'd be. Well... I think we could all celebrate together in the top five. What do you reckon? That'd be great. Maybe Joe, you join well, us. Yeah, I want to make a suggestion to you about this self-publishing thing, which is maybe do the self-publishing angle like The Martian. When The Martian was published. I wouldn't say publish in chunks. I'd say publish the whole book. But when you publish it to Kindle, you could say this is version 1.0 and get feedback and respond aggressively to feedback. And then maybe in two years, there's a hardcover with the bestseller experiments novel plastered right on the front, you know, and wouldn't it be kind of interesting, too, if there was a class of the bestseller experiment where you wound up with three or four bestsellers and it was all all writers who said all writers who said, you know, I listened to the bestseller experiment. I got something out of it, you know, it led to this book. And then you guys could, it would almost be like, you know, C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien having the inklings, you know, where you would have this little community (laughs) of people who had all bonded and did their work, their best work, because they were paying attention to the podcast. That is awesome. That would would be amazing. amazing. That would be the dream. Wouldn't that be cool? That would be fantastic. That would be fantastic. (laughs) <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, it's been an absolutely amazing pleasure having you on the show, Joe. It's uh, enlightening and uh, I've got pages of notes here. I don't even know where to. Oh. I think I think we have to go back to the drawing board <laughs> with our kitchen scene, though, Mark, at the beginning of the book. And <laughs> It's okay to put it in the kitchen as long as something really absolutely. uncomfortable is yeah, happening yeah. in the kitchen while yeah, they talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. tell us, Joe, what are you what are you currently working? Give us a kind of a taster, if you can, as to what your next few months looks like. At the moment, I've got three novellas complete for uh, Strange Weather, but the book will be four novellas. The fourth is called Rain, which exists in first draft in a notebook, but I'm typing it up into second draft. And I, as I go, I add material and cut material out and change material and revise as I go. So you get a complete from scratch rewrite by the time it's typed into the computer. I'm hoping I've got that about 25% typed up and I'm hoping to get the other 75% finished by the end of the month or, you know, the first week or two of February. Then the next book will be complete. But because it is this weird Frankenstein project with four novellas, one of the novellas is very finished. One of the novellas is sort of finished, and the other two are still fairly rough. So there's the you know the next three months is going to be a lot of revision. My comic book is being developed for TV, Um, and so uh, thanks. Um, Lock and Key is we actually had a pass. We almost made it on TV back in 2011. It didn't quite work out, but we're getting another pass at it. So I wrote the pilot script of that, and everyone seems to like it. So we're trying to make that happen, and I'm sure I'll be working on that quite a bit over the next three months too. Incredible journey. Wowzers. And if people want to find out about you, Joe, online, uh, where are the best places to get you? Um, oh, you know, I used to say Twitter about that, but I'm, I, you know, I, I think I, I've never experienced writer's block until just in the last couple months. And it's very narrow. It's just Twitter writer's block. I just don't seem to have anything left to tweet. <laughs> I, probably the best place to find out about me is if you go to joehillfiction.com and then scroll down, you can sign up for my newsletter. And I send a newsletter out every month with weird stuff in it and news about what's happening that's probably the best way to stay in touch perfect stuff brilliant well listen thanks again joe so much for your time today we really appreciate this this incredible threesome that we just had i'll remember it for the rest of my life honestly 
Oh, yeah, it was, it was terrific. Uh, yeah. Apologies if yeah. I blabbed on too much. I had a great time. There is no such thing. It's no, absolutely no, brilliant. It's gold. Absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Gold. And, uh, and uh, Joe, we're just going to throw out there as well. Um, as someone who's been there and done it and been a bestseller, we're wondering if, if you had a 10 minutes spare to cut apart our top level synopsis before we put, before we get deep into it. Would you be up for doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Is this going to go on the podcast? Uh, well, <laughs> there's a good one. We, uh, are you guys keeping how much? How much have you talked about your synopsis and your story? And very your, little. You know your material. Very, very little. Yeah, so, very is, little. so is this going on the podcast? Yeah. Well, we could do that. That could be could quite do. interesting, Mark, because yeah. we'll be a bit. You have the nerve. Yeah, we could go a bit deeper, and uh, and if it's close to the date, for sure, I think we should do it. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Brilliant stuff. <laughs> wow, what if I hate guys, what if I hate? Well, it? exactly. Then then we might have time to do something about it. That's awesome stuff. <laughs> okay. Brilliant. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, go for it. Thank you so much, Joe, and um all the best with all your your incredible projects that are coming up and thank you again so much for your time. Okay. Take care, guys. Take care. Thank you. And please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, please. These all count. And if you want to get in touch online, we're on Twitter at Bestseller XP, Facebook, uh, Bestseller Experiment, Pinterest, and Instagram at Bestseller XP. And go to the website, bestsellerexperiment.com. You can drop us a line there as well. And you can follow us on Twitter too. I'm at Mark Say, and my learned colleague here is at 4000 Saturdays. Excellent. And I actually just want to throw in there as well, uh, Something that happened this week with Scrivener, which was really interesting. So Mark and I were working on Scrivener together and we're using Dropbox as this common place to keep our novel. And what's amazing about that is what I've discovered is, you know, no matter where you are in the world, you know, whether you're out and about and you get a minute to write, you can access your book. And I started editing something in a, I was waiting for 10 minutes whilst my littlest was finishing off his footy practice. And uh, what was really interesting about Dropbox is you also are getting that cloud backup. So I don't know how many stories I've heard, Mark, I don't know about you, but I've heard so many stories of people who have had that massive hard disk wipeout and actually lost 50,000 word novels. Oh, have you, have you, have you, has it ever happened to you? Have you ever lost yeah. anything? Not to me. I always back up. And one little thing I do before I was using Scrivener and Dropbox is I used to just at the end of every day, email That's myself a file. So yeah. it was always there in the sent file. So something always worth thinking about, if you're using yeah. Scrivener, if you're connecting it to, say, a Dropbox or a Google Drive, you know, something in the cloud, then you're going to just remove that potential heartache because, you know, there are people out there who have spent, I can't even imagine how many th hundreds, thousands of hours writing. And I really appreciate that about Scrivener. It's, it's a great little thing. Now, you, there is obviously a chance you can get conflicts if you're working with two people. But the great thing about Scrivener is it actually tells you if there's a conflict, it creates a little file with the conflict in it and you can just weave it back in. So the guys have, it has, it has that saved, saved our, bacon. our bacon this week, and, didn't and it? thank you to the Scrivener team for creating that one particular feature that has been absolutely brilliant. So yeah. uh, if you haven't tried Scrivener, pop over to literatureandlatte.com and give it a go. And also, if like us, you were running just to keep up with Joe just now, because there was so much in that that I found amazing. I'm going to be transcribing that. I'm going to be putting it in our free ebook, The Writer's Vault of Gold, which is now a proper book in its own right now. It's available on EPUB and PDF. We've got advice from Joanne Harris, Joe Abercrombie, Michael Connolly, Brian Cranston, uh, Sarah Pembroke, and now the mighty Joe Hill as well. And it really is genuinely a vault of gold now. It's just fantastic. So look out for that. Come to the website, click on where it says free ebook, and you'll uh, sign up to the mailing list. You'll get it on return. Absolutely. And check out our competitions. As we said earlier, there might be some incredible stuff going up in the next few weeks. And don't forget to pop over to joehillfiction.com to check out Joe's work as well. What an inspiration. What an amazing guy. So much fun. I, I could have spoken to him for hours. Yeah, brilliant stuff. So thank you everyone for joining us this week yeah, on definitely. this incredible roller coaster ride. That is the bestseller experiment. Uh, we appreciate your tweets. We appreciate your <laughs> Facebook comments. We appreciate the emails through the website. We read every single one. So do get in contact. Tell us what you think of the show, uh, how you're getting on with your book. And uh, I think we'll just finish up, Mark, by saying it's a goodbye from Mark 1. And it's a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Goodbye.
to read Back to Reality, the best-selling novel of the bestseller experiment by the two marks, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality. And subscribe to this podcast to get loads of extra bonuses. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash subscribe.